The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Catholics believe. It's been a while since we've addressed some questions here. Uh, Mr. Birch is not with us uh, for this session, but I thought I would go ahead and address some of the questions on my own here. And uh, this question came in uh, back in March. We probably have questions older than that now, and I apologize if we've missed you, but we're still collecting. We're still keeping all the questions we have, and we'll find the opportunity to respond to all. Thank you for your patience. Now this one question from Anthony. Father Jenkins, I was baptized into the pre-Vatican II Catholic Church 1947 and raised in and practiced the true Catholic faith in Catholic schools taught by pre-Vatican II Catholic nuns and pre-Vatican II priests. When were you ordained and was your ordination valid according to the true pre-Vatican II Catholic Church? Uh, well, that's, that's the first question here, and I was ordained by Monsignor uh, Lefebvre, uh, Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre, at Acon uh, on June 29th, 1978. And it was according to the traditional rite by a truly validly consecrated traditional Catholic bishop, and yes, indeed, uh, it certainly is a valid ordination. If I had any doubts, I would not be functioning as a priest. <coughs> Regarding the validity of the Mass and the rite of reconciliation, that as long as the form of the sacrament of reconciliation and the words of consecration are said according to the pre-Vatican II, then a true transubstantiation of the bread and wine into the true body and blood of Christ is perfected, whether Mass is said in the Novus Ordo or the extraordinary rite. A Catholic receives the body and blood of Christ. <clears throat> Note, I believe that since Vatican II there have been anti-popes, but the Church will be preserved and that Christ will chastise and renew his Church. Christ will still work through his mystical body. Okay, that's all in capital letters, the last statement. So uh, the next question seems to be, uh, well, he says, regarding the validity of the Mass, but he also talks about the rite of reconciliation, which is known as the sacrament of penance traditionally. <clears throat> he says, as long as the form of the sacrament of reconciliation penance uh, is, is said, uh, then the sacrament must be, must be valid. Uh, that is not necessarily correct, though. Um, first of all, is the, the rite, the new rite, what they call the sacrament of reconciliation, or the rite of reconciliation, does it still have the traditional form of absolution? The answer is yes, yes it does, as far as I know it does. Uh, so if a Vatican II a priest uh, were to employ that, would that necessarily mean he was giving valid absolution? Well, one has to ask the question, of course, is he validly ordained in the first place? Because someone who is not a validly ordained priest cannot, has no power of holy orders to grant absolution, pure and simple. A person may in good faith go to him and 
<clears throat> receive what he hears are the traditional words of absolution. <clears throat> but the fact that the individual who goes to him, mistake him to believing that he's validly ordained, does not validly ordain him, does not make him a validly ordained priest with the power of granting absolutions. So, you see, he has to be himself validly ordained, the minister of the sacrament, in this case, sacrament of penance, and he would have to have the intention to do so. Um, he would have to have the intention of forgiving sins in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Ghost, as he says. And, um, of course, the penitent would have to have true contrition for his sins, too, and that's from the penitent's part, of course, uh, what he contributes to the sacrament. But on the part of the minister of the sacrament itself, um, he would need valid ordination to the priesthood, Ordinarily, he would need faculties from the local ordinary, uh, but the church does supply uh, the necessary power to grant absolution to the faithful who mistakenly come to a priest who's validly ordained, but is not, does not have actual faculties granted by the bishop of the diocese, let's say. But the church has the principle, which is a very ancient principle. It's... it's um, in, uh, included in the Moral Theology Manuals approved by the Church for hundreds of years. It's an established principle of the Catholic Church. Ecclesia supplet the Church supplies for the benefit of the faithful to be absolved of their sins. And this actually tells us something, uh, by the way, just if I, pursuant to answering the, the rest of the questions, too, of this individual. You know, in, in the Church, there is the power of jurisdiction, and there is the power of holy orders. The power of jurisdiction and the power of holy orders come from our Lord himself. He himself endowed his church through his apostles with these powers. They're Christ's powers. The power to teach, the power to govern, the power to sanctify. The power to teach and power to govern are together under the title of jurisdiction. There you have the power of jurisdiction, you have the power of magisterium, the teaching authority. And uh, these being under the, generally under the power of jurisdiction or government, um, they require authority to be exercised, and that authority has to come from our Lord. The power of holy orders, though, is separate from the other two. It is called by the, the power of holy orders, um, not to say it is entirely distinct from them and entirely cut off from them and entirely independent of them, because since all these powers come from our Lord Jesus Christ, then obviously they are all rooted in him, and they must be related and correlated to each other. But my point here is that our Lord, in, in giving these powers to his church, and the church understood this, and you, you could see this in the history of the church, that the church did understand this, that the holy orders power is a power to sanctify, the power to sanctify the soul. And as the true code of canon law says, the sanctification of souls, the salvation of souls, is the supreme law of the church. All the other laws of the church bow to this supreme law, the sanctification, the salvation of souls. So that in the church's law, you see this provision that the church supplies jurisdiction when it's for the benefit of the welfare of the faithful who come to a priest who otherwise does not have jurisdiction, does not have the authority to absolve in a particular diocese or a particular religious house or wherever. 
But the church supplies because the faithful come to him in good faith and ask him to hear the confession and grant them absolution. Um, there, there are other cases in canon law. For example, an excommunicated priest. Let's say you have a priest who is excommunicated for outrageous sins. Um, let's say he's broken, broken his vows of celibacy and, 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 and uh, not faithful to praying the divine office every day and, and so on and so forth. He's just, he's just uh, abandoned his, his uh, life as a priest. He's excommunicated for crimes and sins. But the church says in her law that even a priest like that, if he has the power of holy orders... That if someone were dying and asking for a priest to absolve him, and that excommunicated, unworthy, sinful priest were on hand, he would, because of the power of holy orders that he cannot lose, have the power to absolve. The church grants him the authority to do so. The church actually basically says that the virtue of charity demands that he do so. Actually, administer the sacrament in persona Christi. So you see the church's primary concern is the sanctification, the salvation of souls. And whenever the power of jurisdiction would stand in the way, would prevent the power of sanctifying and saving souls, then the power of jurisdiction yields to the power of sanctification and salvation, the, the power of holy orders. So you notice that when even, even when in the church's history we've had, well, just bad popes um, misgoverning, malgoverning the church for their own selfish purposes, setting a horrible example to the faithful. Nonetheless, the church's power of sanctifying continues. The power of holy orders continues sanctifying souls. Even during the worst of times in the church's history, barbarian invasions, the Iron Age of the papacy, um, the Babylonian captivity of the church in the 1300s, the, um, the uh, Great Western Schism, throughout all of this, the sanctifying power of the church has continued, uh, the sanctifying power of Christ has continued working through the church in the power of holy orders. And our Lord has given these powers so that the sanctifying power of the church and holy orders could continue through even the most dark and dire times in the church's history. No matter how badly governed she is by wicked people, the power of holy orders, the power to sanctify continues. And so, uh, hopefully that kind of sets the stage for, for referring to, to, to responding to what Anthony is saying here. Uh, and I hope that'll be clear in just a moment. Uh, he also talks about the words of consecration in Holy Mass. He says that if the words of consecration in Holy Mass are the true words of consecration of the body and blood, therefore the body and blood become present, he said. He, he makes a statement. He doesn't ask this. He just states this flatly. But it's not true. Because the words of uh, valid words of consecration of the bread and valid words of consecration of the wine can be invalid. Why? Well, if the priest is not validly ordained, he's not a priest. He doesn't have the power. No matter how many times he says the valid words in themselves uh, a suitable form for the uh, sacrament of the Holy Eucharist, it wouldn't make him a priest and it wouldn't give him the power to consecrate. Um... Pope Leo XIII answered that question with regard to the 
Anglicans, orders. So they're not validly ordained. They have no power to consecrate. He was even addressing the question about when they changed the right of, of the ordination of their priests to bring it more into line with the Roman Catholic understanding. In some cases, even restoring the Catholic right to some extent. And the argument was, well, therefore, then it became valid. And his point was, Pope Leo's point was, well, number one, in the meantime, when you had this manifestly invalid form for ordaining priests or consecrating bishops, all the power of holy orders lapsed in your clergy, your vicars. And it doesn't suddenly revive when you go back to some traditional Catholic form. Uh, by that time, your clergy have no holy orders at all. They're not priests, they're not bishops, they can't ordain anyone. But he also made this point. He said, even if you <clears throat> inserted the traditional Catholic uh, form of a valid ordination of the priesthood or consecration of bishops at some point, <clears throat> the surrounding prayers already tell you that you don't understand these traditional words of Catholics in the same sense that the Catholics understand, because the prayers that you've surrounded these, the formula with deny the true meaning of these words. You don't believe in a sacrificing priesthood because you don't believe in the holy sacrifice of the Mass, he says. So how could you even take the traditional words of ordination of the priest, or the traditional words uh, of ordination or consecration of a bishop, how could you, especially the ordination of a priest, um, and expect them to be valid when the prayers before, the prayers afterward, basically reinterpret, redefine the very words you're using to say, this is not a Catholic priest. This is not a Catholic priest. This is not a sacrificing priest. We do not believe in the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. It's impossible. So Pope Leo said that even the prayers of the surrounding rite definitely determine the sense of the words that you're saying, even if they happen to be let's say, uh, materially uh, uh, um, valid, uh, you've ruined them. So here you have a case, for example, <coughs> if a man would presume to be ordaining a priest, but before he ordains the priest, he says, I'm going to use the traditional Catholic formula for ordaining this priest, but when I say priest, when I say chasheros or presbyter or any of that, I don't mean a sacrificing priest as a Catholic priesthood. I don't mean that at all. I just mean that he's a minister. He's not a representative of Christ. He's a representative of the people. That's all he is, okay? And um, so you have to interpret my words that I'm saying right now in that sense, that, that I'm telling you how I mean these words. That would completely annihilate any, any possibility of this being a valid ordination. Uh, so um, it's not enough just to say a certain words. It's like it's a magic formula. I mean, one has to have the intention. One has to have the matter. One has to have the form. All three of them have to come together, not just the form alone, to make a valid sacrament. 
And uh, so, no, it's not true to say that the words of consecration are said according to pre-Vatican II, that a true transubstantiation of the bread and wine in the body and blood of Christ is perfected. The, the, the word is confected, anyway. But this, uh, is, this statement is not true. And then Anthony goes on to say, whether the Mass is said in the Novus Ordo or the extraordinary rite. Now here, we were getting to the heart of the matter with the Novus Ordo. The Novus Ordo was never intended to be the sacrifice of reparation, that is, the sacrifice of Calvary. The Novus Ordo has obliterated any clear statement in its, in its prayers that it, the Novus Ordo ceremony itself is a sacrifice of, sacrifice of reparation. It remembers the sacrifice of reparation that Jesus our Lord made on Calvary 2,000 years ago. It remembers that. It's a memorial. It's a memorial service. But there's a big difference between the Protestant idea of saying, we're remembering that Jesus died for us long, long ago, far, far away, and saying, this ceremony that we're performing here is actually not only memorializing the event of the reparation of Christ on the cross, but it actually makes it present. This is that sacrifice. This is that sacrifice here and now. That's the Mass. And the new Mass is, uh, denies it. How? Well, the new Mass says over and over again, it's a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. Over and over again, that's all it says. Sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. You know the Council of Trent, Session 22, said that if anyone should say that the, the Mass is nothing but a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, anathema sit, is anathema. That it's not offered in reparation for sin, anathema. And if it's not offered in reparation for sin, it's not the sacrifice of Calvary, it's not the Mass. Can you see that from the Mass prayers? Yes, you can see that from the Novus Ordo Mass prayers, too. You see, this isn't by accident that the Novus Ordo just happened to leave that out. Like, oops, look at that. We left those prayers out. How did that happen? They did this on purpose. Look at the offertory of the new Mass. Look at the offertory of the traditional Mass. What's the offertory? The offertory is part of the Mass that tells you exactly what you're there to do. What are you offering? What are you offering to God? The offertory prayer is stated clearly. <clears throat> it's the first of the three essential parts of the Mass, the offertory. Compare them. Put them side by side. See it with your own eyes. <clears throat> the traditional Mass makes very clear that this is a sacrifice offered in reparation for sin. For the sins of the priest. That's where the priest starts. For the sins of those who are present there at the Mass. And from there he goes on to all faithful Christians. And then he says, not only the living, but even the dead. In other words, this is the sacrifice of reparation of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. There's no question. It's clear. And then when the priest uh, goes and he holds up the chalice, he says the previous prayer when he's holding up the host before his eyes and looking up to the crucifix. Here as he holds up the chalice now that he's poured the wine into, he says we're offering this sacrifice for mercy, begging God for mercy. In the new Mass, it's gone. It's not there. None of it. It's all gone. All gone. Now we're offering bread and wine as our spiritual food. Our spiritual food, our spiritual drink. That's it. Take a look for yourself. 
And so if the Mass itself, as Pope Leo XIII said, of this, the surrounding prayers, of, uh, surrounding even the very Catholic words of ordination of the priesthood, if the surrounding prayers deny uh, what those words mean to Catholics, whether in the Anglican rite of ordination or in the formula of consecrating bread and wine in the Catholic, uh, true Catholic Mass. In the Novus Ordo, if they're taken out of that context of Catholicism and they're put in the context of doubt and denial, then that does at least raise a serious question. Are these valid? In light of what the not only what is omitted in the Novus Ordo, but what was deliberately, deliberately taken out, deliberately extracted, deliberately obliterated in the Novus Ordo. Doesn't the Novus Ordo say something contrary to the Catholic belief? <clears throat> that this is the body and blood of Christ to offer reparation for sin. It's a question, but because it is a question, then it won't go away. It's a serious question. It raises a, a serious doubt, at least that, about the validity of, of the Novus Ordo. I mean, one would still argue and should still argue that the new, new words, the new words of consecration at the Novus Ordo Mass are doubtfully valid at best anyway. I mean, if you tell a lie about Christ and about his sacrifice, even as you're supposedly consecrating bread and wine, if you say that you know, they would be offered for all, they, they've said all men at first, but then that was considered sexist, so they had to go to all. Of course, they're politically correct, even in the so-called words of instant, or narrative of institution, as they call it. Um, but the Council of Trent said about this that our Lord deliberately said, intentionally said for many, because he was referring to the fruits of the sacrifice that only many would be saved, not all. And the Novus Ordo tries to give the idea or kind of communicate the idea that everybody goes to heaven anyway. Look at their so-called masses of the resurrection. Don't pray for him, pray to him, they say. You know, when they're burying somebody, even if he's cremated, they've got nothing but a, an urn of ashes in front of them. So uh, the Novus Ordo is really a different faith. It's, a moder it's modernism. That's all it is. It's modernism put into practice. It's a re their religion. So again, I mean, all of these things raise serious, serious questions and, and serious doubts, to the, say the very least, about the Novus Ordo. Uh, having a valid mass, valid ordinations, any of this. But when you say, Anthony, the church will be preserved and that Christ will chastise and renew his church, Christ will still work through his mystical body, well, of course, it's true, we know that. The church is not only infallible, but the church is indefectible meaning that the church, as Christ established it, must exist throughout, throughout time and even to the end of the world. But that doesn't mean that there won't be uh, breakaways forming Lutheranism and breakaways forming Anglicanism and breakaways forming Novus Ordoism and Modernism. It doesn't mean that there will not be a massive loss of faith. In fact, there must be a massive loss of faith because St. Paul writes of it in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the word of God is divine revelation. There'll be a massive loss of faith. And there are those of us who happen to believe that this Novus Ordo, modernism, is the fulfillment of that. Are we uh, just mere 
clearly speculating about this without any foundation. Uh, just it's our own sort of uh, whim that leads us to say, well, we think modernism is the fulfillment of St. Paul's prophecy about a great apostasy because it seems to f serve our purposes. Is that the idea? Uh, and no, actually. Uh, if you go to the first encyclical written by St. Pius X, it was just two months after he was elected Pope. He was elected the Pope in August of 1903. And in October, October 4th, 1903, the same year, he issued his first encyclical, and he said at the very beginning of the encyclical that he was terrified to be ordained, to be, to be elected the Vicar of Christ on Earth, to be made the Pope, terrified because he thought the time had come for the Antichrist and all of the things that St. Paul had written about in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. It was time for these to take place. He said that the Antichrist might already be in the world or soon to come. Now, St. Pius X can say that in his first encyclical. We certainly have the right as Catholics to see what's happening in the church today, to see what's happening to the church today, to believe that St. Pius X was right. But nonetheless, the church continues in her traditional Catholics. They still have the faith. They still practice that religion, the true religion. They haven't gone running after modernism, falling for modernism, and its religion, the Novus Ordo. Uh, and the church does give them the authority. The church supplies the authority they need to administer the sacraments for the sanctification and the salvation of souls. I agree with you there. Christ will always work through his church. Now, with regard to another question here by Julius, regarding the implementation of the Novus Ordo Mass, is it true that of all the bishops of the world at the time, only Archbishop Lefebvre and Meyer continued to oppose the Novus Ordo and the new orientation of the church? We know that Cardinal Ottaviani put out his intervention with other bishops, but it seems that that brief resistance all faded away soon after. How could it be that of the thousands of bishops of the world, only two that I know of, refused to give in to the modernist regime? If we look at what Archbishop Lefebvre achieved almost single-handedly, imagine what just 5% of the world's 3,000-plus bishops, approximately 150, could have done defending tradition in a likewise manner. Your thoughts, Father? Well, first of all, a good, very good question. So the, the other questions uh, by Anthony were very good questions, too. Good questions, they need good answers. Better claim to have the best answers, but I'll give what answers I have, and I'll try to answer this as best I can, too. Well, uh, it is not necessarily true to say that only Archbishop Lefebvre and Bishop de Castro Meyer, Antonio de Castro Meyer, opposed the Novus Ordo. Uh, Monsignor, uh, for example, Bishop uh, Mendez, uh, Bishop Alfredo Mendez uh, did oppose the Novus Ordo in his own way. I've seen letters that he wrote to the Vatican um, objecting what was going on and uh, his efforts writing to other bishops who, who still had jurisdiction at the time he said to please ordain traditional priests. This is when uh, Bishop Mendez had retired. So, And I know that for, there were other bishops too. There were other bishops who did oppose the Novus Ordo but you're right in this, none of them as publicly and as stalwartly as Monsignor Lefebvre and Bishop de Castro-Meyer. These were the ones who spoke out. Now the two, 
Bishop de Castro Minor did so in his Diocese of Campos in South America, but uh, Archbishop Lefebvre uh, spoke through the entire world, actually, by establishing his priestly fraternity of St. Pius V, I'm sorry, St. Pius X, excuse me, priestly fraternity of St. Pius X, and uh, sending traditional priests throughout the world. Despite the, uh, the cries of foul of the Novus Ordo clergy. And uh, so, really, when you get right down to it, worldwide, on a, on a, on a worldwide scale, Monsignor Lefebvre, Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre, was the one bishop who stood up before the Novus Ordo uh, uh, leaders of the entire world and would not cooperate with them in squelching or stifling the Catholic faith. Now you ask, how could this be? How could this be? Well, you know, I understand well your question. What could 5% of the world's bishops have done? Um, uh, well, I don't know. I mean, we can only guess uh, what they would have done, and, but the guess would be wonderful to contemplate, really. Be beautiful to contemplate. They perhaps could have rallied the world's Catholics and uh, successfully driven the modernists from the church and reclaimed the church's institutions, uh, not only the buildings, uh, the, the churches themselves, the monasteries, the convents, and so on, um, but perhaps they could have mounted a very serious, serious counterattack of real Catholics <clears throat> that would have made the modernists uh, withdraw. I don't know. No. We can speculate. But I'll tell you this. Um, I share your wonder that there were so few bishops who stood up. But even if it were only Marcel Lefebvre himself, I would still also wonder that there was even one, even one bishop, even one is amazing. Why? Well, because the, the modernists had been at work in the church for a long, long time. Remember the permanent instruction of the Altamandita put out by, well, under the name Nubius. They think it's Mazzini, the arch-fiend enemy of the church, uh, and Mason in Italy. Uh, all the way back in the 1800s, the early 1800s, the, the, the permanent instruction of the Altamandita, the secret societies of Italy, had mapped out a plan to infiltrate the church to obtain a pope who would play ball with them, who would speak, perhaps even without knowing it, for them, who would represent their ideas and thus turn the church into the greatest uh, agent of revolution, liberal, modernist revolution that the world would ever, had ever seen. They wanted to revolutionize the church by getting a pope who would do that. But he said, in order to do that, we have to first cultivate a generation of young people. The whole generation of young people, especially Italy, said, we have to work on this. But it wasn't just in Italy. To, to uh, cultivate them to think like liberals. And he said, we have to corrupt them. We have to corrupt their morals. He said, we must corrupt them through the priests. We must corrupt them through their mothers. Interesting that uh, this was forecast uh, over 200 years ago. Should we take this seriously? I'll tell you, 
Saint Papias the Ninth took it seriously. Leo the Thirteenth took it seriously. They ordered this published, made public, that this was the plan of the secret societies of Italy to infiltrate the church and to secure a pope who would serve their purposes, to revolutionize the church, and through the church to revolutionize the whole world. And so um, we have every, every reason to believe that this is exactly what they were intending, and that Pope Pius IX saw a clear and present danger. He wanted all the Catholics to be aware of this. Well, we need to be aware of it today. So if the Masons were at work in this for, for all these years, leading up to the Vatican II and beyond, the question is, why was there even one bishop who slipped past them? I mean, if they had been influencing the selection of bishops and cardinals for generations, they thought they had chosen well and wisely men who would be easily snapped into line, who could be controlled, who would not dare stand up and oppose the church as they thought it was, as they knew it to be. Especially Monsignor Lefebvre. Archbishop Lefebvre was trained in the Vatican diplomatic corps. I mean, this was his his bent was to seek a way to for peace and concord and and accommodation, uh, but never never yielding principles. And this was what they overlooked with Monsieur Lefebvre when they made him a bishop. That he was yes, he could purr like a kitten, but he could roar like a lion too. <clears throat> when it came to principle. And uh, he was very powerful. And they could not badger him or threaten him into submission. When it came to a matter of, of his fidelity to Christ, his oath against modernism, he would never, ever part with his faith, his Catholic religion, uh, his responsibility as a priest, as a bishop, as a baptized Catholic. Nothing they did to him could get him to accept the Novus Ordo and to reject his faith in favor of modernism. My question is, why was there only one? Why was there even one? Not just why was there only one. Why was there even one bishop who managed to get through this very effective modernist blockade when they were so carefully picking the bishops who played ball with them, whom they could control? There was here one. It's the work of grace. It's the work of grace. Pure and simple. And so God allowed one bishop to stand up before the whole world and say that I will not succumb to modernism. I will hold the faith. And thank goodness, thank God he did there were other individual bishops who supported Monsieur Lefebvre in spirit and in their local areas. Uh, no one put themselves on the firing line of the whole Novus Ordo modernist, I hesitate to call it a hierarchy, <laughs> but um, the whole complexus, the whole, the whole machine, modernist machine. 
But Monsieur Lefebvre did, and thanks be to God that he did. But it was the work of grace. It's not the work of man, it's the work of grace. And so ultimately it was God's, God's doing that made one bishop willing to do that, able to do that. And thank God that he did. Now there's another question here from Mike. Uh, hello, I don't believe this particular topic has been discussed in what Catholics believe, so I wanted to ask if it would be possible to talk about why Catholics should not watch Harry Potter. I've heard priests in the past speak out against it, but I think it would be beneficial if the topic could be talked about on the show. And Michael, that's again an excellent question. You know, uh, the chief exorcist in Rome, Father Gabriele Amort, himself has spoken very, very insistently, persistently against the whole Harry Potter series, saying it's bad, it's dangerous, it's uh, not something that the Catholic people should be reading, or anybody else for that matter. Because, he said, it opens the door toward the occult powers. I'm not quoting him, but that's essentially, I believe, what he said. And I, I do believe he's right. Now, don't get me wrong, I mean, there are Catholic people I know who have read Harry Potter's, uh, the Harry Potter novel series. I think they've read every word of every one of these volumes. They haven't lost their faith. They haven't become Satanists. They haven't, they haven't become Wiccans. Uh, they're very good traditional Catholics. <clears throat> Why? Well, because their faith was strong enough, so they just read these things as kind of adventure stories. Sort of in the same tone that you might read um, the story of the Knights of the Round Table of King Arthur and Merlin the Magician and all that. And entertaining stories, but nonetheless uh, like fairy, fairy tales. And so it didn't destroy their faith, didn't open the pathway to the occult in them. Because of the way they read them, the way they took them, they didn't understand them in any other way than just pure fairy tales. Now, I happened to pick up a volume that I found lying around. I forget which of the volumes it was. I started reading it. I thought, this is really not literature. I mean, this is storytelling, but it's not really a good literature. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, it's just kind of, well, what should I say? Uh, Low-level writing. And nothing particularly poetic or inspiring about it. Um, it may be very expressive in describing scenes and actions and so on, but uh, I thought it was kind of hokey, actually. Uh, I mean, these Latin expressions that throw in there to make them sound really cool as magical incantations, I mean, I thought this is pretty hokey stuff when you get to that. But nonetheless, <clears throat> but I saw how this could be very dangerous. Why? In an age we have when faith is very thin, where you find it at all, this does definitely open a door where there is a very, very weak faith, as I say, if any faith at all, then this opens a door to something else, another faith. And this opens a door to even pride. You see, Satan can disguise himself as an angel of light, as we know, and I think the Harry Potter books can be understood in the way as kind of opening this idea up to young people that, hey, you know, there is this magic and it can be good. You know, it's not always bad. 
In itself, it, it, can, it can be a good thing for a good person to use for good purposes. And so, you know, we should play with it, <clears throat> fantasize about it. Who knows? Maybe even dabble in it. What's the harm? I mean, there was even a, a Barbie doll, I think it was, that was put out uh, uh, like a witchcraft Barbie. They had a book of spells that came with it. And the advertisement, the advertisement uh, showed some girls casting a spell on some boy to make him like one of the girls. I mean, what could fit into the mindset of a 12, 13-year-old girl more perfectly than that? Talk about an enticement to start uh, practicing witchcraft, even as a form of play. And of course, witchcraft does have a, an appeal because it, 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 it um, pretends to give power. Young people want power. Everybody does want power. But young people who feel kind of adrift in the world today, like, and they, they, they feel, you know, their, their parents are fighting, maybe divorced, uh, maybe they can have a broken home, their, their brothers and sisters are all out and about doing their own thing, they have love relationship, relationship problems and friendship problems and all the problems they have with the um, complexion and the hair and all the rest. I mean, all of this, and yeah, they want control. And here's Wicca to say, we can give you the control of your will. We can give you the power over the forces of nature. I was reading a book by, my, uh, what's his name, Warnke. Uh, I forget his first name now. I think it's Michael Warnke. He was a Satanist high priest in San Bernardino area. He was actually in charge of all the drug traffic, as he said, in the San Bernardino area as the Satanist high priest out there. Now, this was not Wicca. I understand that. The Wiccans and the Satans claim that they're not the same at all, but they're very much opposed to each other because the Satanists believe in the power of a, an evil, well, we would call evil, some kind of proud spirit, uh, Lucifer, Satan, a revolutionary uh, who brings light to man and empowers man. And Wiccans don't believe in that. They believe in the forces of nature and we're part of nature. And so we can harness, we can bring these and form kind of a, a relationship with them so that they will serve our purposes in spells and incantations. And they try to almost give it a certain scientific bent to it. But ultimately, I mean, they really, whether the Wiccans realize it or not, what they're, what they're serving is really the satanic power. They really are. It's just naivete that they're, they're making it sound like Satanism light is what it really is, Wicca. And um, so Henry, Harry Potter, Harry Potter, oh, I was telling this about Mike Warnke. Mike said was he was a young man, he was down and out, and his life wasn't going very well, but he knew somebody was into Satanism. He said one day they were walking down the street together and they passed in the city, they passed an old building that was condemned. It was going to be torn down. And um, the, the Satanist who was walking with uh, Warnke said to him as they passed the building, just kind of a uh, inserting in an out of, out of place part of the conversation. Do you see that building there? And Warnke said, yeah. And the man just went on with his conversation, ignoring it. They took a few, oh, I don't know, they walked another 100 feet, 150 feet, whatever it was, maybe down to the other end of the block, the city block. And the man said to Warnke, turn around and look at that building now. And Warnke turned around and the building had collapsed. It was lying in rubble. 
The Satanist said, you can have that power too, if you'll give yourself to Satan. And what he did. He escaped later on, but not until he'd uh, already done an enormous amount of damage. But his point is that this power is intoxicating. And so uh, if there's one thing that the Harry Potter novels have done is get people thinking in terms of Wicca spells, the power of the mind to command and affect by just the power of the, of the will, the individual person's will to affect reality, control other people, control forces of nature for good or for ill. But the fact is, it's, it's all, it is for ill because ultimately it appeals to that sense of pride. And one thinks he's getting power, but he's giving himself. He's actually a lot. He's giving power over himself to an occult force that does not love him, that wants to devour him. Yeah, I think the Harry Potter series is very dangerous in that view. I guess very dangerous to those who don't have a strong Catholic faith. And how many people in the world today have that to protect themselves? against this pit they will the blind will follow the blind and they will fall into the pit <coughs> and i think the harry potter novels are this pit and only those who <coughs> have this very strong faith to realize but this is just these are stories silly stories they have nothing to do with reality but they can be entertaining i still say they're, they're dangerous even there but i think that you know, I don't think everybody who reads the novels is going to become an evil Satanist, wicked person who is necessarily going to go to hell. No, I'm not saying that. I just see this as, again, what can be an occasion of sin for someone who has a weak faith. And uh, I would advise them, don't, don't waste your time. There are a lot of better things, really good things that you can read. And that, that's the least I would say. Even if, I, even if I didn't think the person would be in serious danger from reading them, I would say don't waste your time. Read some really serious good literature. Improve your mind. Uh, last question here. Uh, actually, this is back to Julius now. The SSPB and other state of accountants does not believe that the post-conciliar popes are true popes because they were and are modernists and because the church has always condemned modernism. These modernist popes have never openly said that they're modernists. However, through their words and actions, though, though I'm sorry, I think he means though their words and actions have implied this. Barack Obama, who undisputedly, like him or not, is the president of the United States, he, Barack, has been labeled a communist, a Marxist, a pro-Islamist, and also an un-American in the way he does things. Previous presidents, as well as generations of Americans, have always condemned these things, yet Barack Obama is president nevertheless. People may not want him as president, just like many Catholics don't want Francis as Pope, myself being one, but nobody denies his presidency. Is there a parallel here? Answer, no. <laughs> no, there's no parallel whatsoever. What makes a man a Pope, what makes a man a president, are two very different things. Um... First of all, let me just point this out, too. With regard to Barack Obama, there are the birthers, okay? They believe that Barack Obama is not eligible to become president of the United States because he is not a native-born American. 
that his birth certificate, they say, as is a, is a farce and a fraud. This is what the birth, birther movement or the element says. I, I mean, I, I have, I'm not a student of this. I don't know the value of the comments and their assessment. So, um, I mean, I don't know enough to say they're categorically wrong. I certainly don't know enough to say that, that they're categorically right. I, I just don't know. But I want to point out that there are those who say that he was born in uh, Kenya, um, they say, and um, that, um, or in Indonesia, I think the claim is some say in Hawaii. Very hard to get a real, any accurate re references or any accurate evidence for this. It's strange, it's strange how strange that he is, his, his provenance. Very strange. But those who claim that he's not a natural, that he's not an actual native-born American uh, citizen uh, claim that by constitution, by the constitution he cannot become president. And so he's ineligible, and that's the end of the story. They disqualify him as president of the United States. Nonetheless, if he is president, and ultimately, it's the Constitution that must determine that, the United States Constitution and the facts of his birth. But if he is president, it has nothing to do with Francis being Pope. Okay? Um, one can be, quote-unquote, validly elected or, or legally elected president and be a traitor, right? be impeached, even be found guilty of high crimes and treason. Okay? by law, but still have been president. Okay, but to be um, a pope, well, uh, one has to be a member of the mystical body of Christ. How can you be the head of the mystical body of Christ, the visible head of the mystical body of Christ, if you're not even a member of the mystical body of Christ? You don't belong to the mystical body of Christ. And so a question that they ask is, well, do they have the faith or not? Do they actually believe in the, in the Catholic faith? Or are they, for whatever reason, not Catholics because they never had the faith? Uh, or because they have lost the faith and publicly uh, lost the faith? Um, these are questions that have been raised in the history of the church by theologians, sometimes great theologians, sometimes doctors of the church. Some, have raised the question, you know, is it possible a pope could be invalidly elected because of some flaw, radical flaw in the election, and thus become a mere putative pope or a doubt, doubtful pope? Is it possible one could be validly elected pope and lose the papacy? And there are those who say that, well, if, if the pope were to lose the faith, publicly lose the faith, then... Uh, he would not be deposed, but it would be a matter of the uh, the hierarchy of the church, the cardinals, the bishops getting together and announcing the fact that he had died, spiritually died by losing the faith, effectively died, and therefore had lost the papacy, or had lost the use of reason, and therefore that intellectually he had died, and uh, therefore uh, that he had lost the papacy for that reason. Now, again, these are things that have never actually happened, but theologians speculate about these things. They raise the question. So my point is not that I'm saying this is the answer, but I'm just saying it's, it's not wrong to ask the question. It's perfectly fine. 
Catholics and great Catholic leaders and theologians and doctors have been asking these very questions for literally hundreds of years now. So, um, to become the Pope obviously requires some kind of qualifications. Um, you have to be a validly consecrated bishop because you have to be, be able to be Bishop of Rome. To be a validly consecrated bishop, you have to be validly ordained a priest. You can't be validly consecrated a bishop if you're not validly ordained a priest to begin with. Francis is the first of the Novus Ordo pontiffs, and I refer to him as a pope, the pope of the Novus Ordo. He's the pope of the modernist New Order Church. He's the pope of the church. Okay. Um, can he be uh, the pope of that church as well as the pope of the traditional Catholic Church at the same time? Well, again, you know, people argue about that. Um, personally, I don't see how, but the fact that I don't see how doesn't make it so one way or the other. Uh, Monsignor Marceau used to say, he was the priest, the, uh, the retired army chaplain, uh, back when I was a seminarian, and before, who would say, with all seriousness, I'm not saying he's not the Pope. My goodness, I think it was Paul VI back then. He just, he, he just said, I'm not saying he's not the Pope, I just don't see how he can be. And that was his way of just saying, you know, how can we, how can we tell? They sure don't act like Popes. And Monsieur Lefebvre uh, also said, uh, and excuse my terrible accent, je ne dirai plus, je ne dirai pas, he said, je ne dirai pas qu'il n'est pas le Pape. Je ne dirai non plus, in very poorly accented French, I will not say that he's not the Pope, but neither will I say that one can't say that he's not the Pope. That's what Monsieur Lefebvre said back, uh, actually, in the 80s. And he also, back in 1970s, in his work, uh, The Masterstroke of Satan, uh, Obedience, uh, raised the same question about Paul VI. So... Um, he seemed open to the idea that the church itself ultimately would decide this question. He didn't think he had the competence to do so, any more than I believe that I have the competence to do so. In, in fact, much less so. Uh, those who claim that Monsieur Lefebvre never had any doubts, uh, that that's not true. That is simply contrary to reality. Regardless, uh, that a pope be pope, well, <clears throat> there are requirements, and there are a lot of speculation of how a pope could be elected, and then whether he would hold the papacy if he lost the faith, manifestly. And under what circumstances a pope could, but a pope could, in fact, lose the, lose the papacy. Um, regarding uh, what uh, Julia says here, the SSPV and other state of contest does not believe that the post conciliar popes are true popes. Well, um, you know, I, you have to distinguish here, Julius. Uh, we are not we are not state of in the sense that they are state of in the sense that they say, uh, uh, you know, the Novus Ordo popes are not popes, and we we therefore have the authority of popes to say that they're not popes. We can make a dogma, and we can insist that everyone believe as we believe that they're not the popes, because if we believe that someone's not the pope and, and you believe he is, then you're not Catholic because you don't believe you don't agree with me. I mean, I may be absolutely convinced through logical deduction that Francis is not the Pope, but I know for a fact that I'm not the Pope, 
and I do not have the authority to lay down as lay down dogmatically any fact stated as a mere fact that uh, that Francis is not a pope. I don't have the authority to do that, uh, such that I can say if you believe he is, you're not a Catholic. <clears throat> I mean, there were times when the most hard line seat of a contest today, maybe ten years ago, maybe five years ago, maybe fifteen years ago was not so convinced. And I know some very, very diehard state of today who will pound the table and insist he's not the Pope. Um, and if you believe he is, you're not a Catholic. That disqualifies you because I believe he's not the Pope. Well, I know some of 5, 10, 15 years ago, or 20 years ago, were arguing that he was against the state of at that time. So somewhere along the line, they changed their view, and as they changed their view, suddenly everybody else had to change their view too, in order to stay Catholic. And I don't think that's right. Um, I knew one uh, traditional Catholic priest leader, whom I revere very much, he's dead now, God rest his soul, but in the 1980s, he made it very clear that, uh, Fran yeah, that John Paul is a pope, a bad pope, but a pope. And you can't say he's not the Pope. And ten years later, he was saying the exact opposite. He's not the Pope, and you can't believe he is the Pope. And I actually went out to talk to him, and I said, look, you know, you changed your view. Give people a break. You know, there are people who are still kind of developing their thinking on the subject. So don't anathematize them when they say he isn't the Pope. And then ten years later, anathematize the same people for saying he is. Well, you get the point. Anyway, uh, the state of Accountist that I know, right, who uh, declare themselves Sidivicantist almost as though that's their religion, Sidivicantism, I think cross the line in becoming dogmatic Sidivicantists and claim that they have the authority to make that decision for everybody because they personally have come to this conclusion. By dint of logic and research, they've decided that Francis is not a pope. Uh, well, bully for them, but they do not become the pope themselves, and they don't have the authority to bind everybody to that conclusion of theirs. So I think there's a major difference between the Society of St. Pius V and my own personal position and all those out there who are branded St. Vicantus, who, who conduct themselves as though, well, they're the Pope then, and they're going to make the decision for everybody. We don't pretend to make the decision for everybody. Um, anyway, uh, excuse the rant there, but uh, it's, it's a... It's a a problem that is caused by the Society of St. Pius X because they just brand everybody with a broad brush of St. Evacantism. And I don't think it's honest uh, to do that, but they continue to do that. And I think it's, they confuse people. But the, here he says the SSPV and other St. Evacantists uh, do not believe that the post-conciliar popes are true posts because they are modernists. Well, and not only are they modernists, so they've made an issue of their modernism, they've made a profession of their modernism, they've called into question doctrines of the faith, they've falsified the Catholic religion and enjoined it upon people to fake, accept a non-Catholic religion, non religion in place of the true Catholic religion. So uh, if you want to sum it up in that we say they're modernists and you include all of that, fine. But uh, actually, there is a lot more to it than that. So again, uh, Julius, I, I think you're missing some things here. Um, and, and, and you're not characterizing the situation quite right here. 
Um, you're right, the modernist posts have never stood up and said, hey, I'm a modernist. Uh, you know, uh, get used to the idea, I'm a modernist, so, um, you know, let's, let's uh, uh, come to terms with that and, and move on. You know, that's where we're going, modernism. No, they've never said that, I understand that. Well, of course they're not going to say that. Um, even though you say their words and actions have implied this, well, I'd say, I'd say, when when a man like Francis actually uh, becomes the virtual embodiment, he's like the virtual reality modernist. If you took uh, the encyclical condemning the error of the modernists of Saint Pius X, Bishendi Dominici Gregis, and you could incarnate that encyclical. In, in a human form, it would be Francis. He is the living, breathing incarnation of modernism as condemned by St. Pius X. And so, no, I don't think it's just a matter of implications. I'm sorry, I think it goes way beyond that. And, uh, you know, there are serious questions here, very, very serious questions. So, I mean, the very least that I would, that I would feel perfectly qualified to say is that there, there are serious objective doubts uh, about the papacy of any one of them. Francis, exceptionally so. Uh, in the practical order, we cannot follow them. We, we have to follow, we have to follow the traditional faith, the traditional Catholic faith, okay? But anyway, um, I uh, just wanted to answer a few questions while I could. I wish you all uh, a very blessed, uh, blessed uh, Sundays after Pentecost here, and uh, uh, let us pray for all of those whose names have come up here in the course of uh, tonight's show. I do pray for them. All of those whose names I've raised here, pro or con, I do remember daily in prayer, and I ask you to do the same. And God bless you.